The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 133. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Brave hearty. Change, my dear. And it seems not a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position is wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Should be fine. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing The Fires of Pompeii, a 10th Doctor story. Or is it a 12th? 10th. Doctor, or 11th. Uh, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Somewhere in there. There's a 10th Doctor story, but there's more than one Doctor in it. See? And Maybe? more than one companion in it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So we'll get into that in a second. But joining me today on the panel are. Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thank you. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to like the Secrets of Doctor Who uh, posts when we put them up on Facebook at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Secrets of Doctor Who. So like the page and then like the posts and then uh, share them with your friends. Uh, be sure to retweet the posts when we put them on our Twitter account at SQPN and, and leave us comments. All these things help us to... Uh, juice the social media algorithms and get the podcast out there so more uh, Doctor Who fans can see it. And that's what we're all about. We want to spread the the joy of sharing Doctor Who. Uh, I do want to promote a new show on the StarQuest Network uh, called American Catholic History. This is a weekly podcast by my friends Tom and Noel Crow. It's under 10 minutes long, once a week, and they cover an interesting story or person, usually very often some uh, something you've never heard before uh, from an American Catholic who's contributed something based on their faith to our nation. Uh, if you're an American uh, over the past 300 some odd years, so you know, including before independence. Uh, if you're not an American, it's it's still a great way to hear some great stories. The first few stories are really uh, excellent, and uh, I hope you'll subscribe to it. It's at sqpn.com/history and check it out. It's a, it's, a, it's a quick listen under 10 minutes long uh, each time. So uh, I recommend that. So today, though, we're talking about uh, this 10th Doctor story <laughs> called Fires of Pompeii. It features uh, David Tennant as the 10th Doctor and it uh, Donna Noble as his companion. It originally aired in April of 2008, and uh, this is the third episode of the fourth season. So uh, Donna has now been with the Doctor. This is her third time out with him. And we talked about... <laughs> Is it a tenth doctor? Is it a uh, uh, the twelfth doctor? So here, here's the deal. Uh, this is, if you don't recall, the tenth doctor tries taking Donna Noble to ancient Rome for her first trip in the TARDIS, but miscalculates. They end up on Pompeii on, as they put it, Volcano Day, mm-hmm. and that's where they encounter uh, a marble salesman uh, by the name of Cacellius, and the, he is played by Peter Capaldi, the twelfth yes. doctor. And then we also see as a, as actually a minor player, a couple of speaking lines, Karen Gillan, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll mention you know where she shows up too when when that happens. But uh, so it's it's one of those things where you know it's kind of interesting. We have like we we often joke, every British actor eventually shows up on Doctor well, and, Who and, at one point or another. And Doctor Who has a history of character of of actors coming back at, at starting as a minor mm-hmm. character and then coming back as a major character. Uh, Colin Baker was in a fifth Doctor story set on Gallifrey as a guard. Yep, who and shot he, uh, later shot came back as the Peter Davison. Yeah, wow. And then later came back obviously as the sixth Doctor. So this is something, and it's it's happened other times as well. So this is something that that's happened throughout the history of Doctor Who that character actors will come back to play a more prominent role at a later time. Interesting. So the the interesting thing about this one is that uh, Stephen Moffat. The who will be the showrunner at the time of Peter Capaldi, he he incorporates this into the story at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, what was the name of that episode? Um, 
it was when they met a shielder with the Vikings, that sort of thing. Uh, I had that in my tongue and now I, for, I forgot it. Yeah. But uh, they. The girl uh, who died. The girl who. The, yeah, the girl who died, the woman who lived. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it was a two yeah. part, two two episodes. Yes, but I think it was the girl who died. And he he says that in, in that episode, um, he shares the face of Kekelius. He purposely chose it during his regeneration. N- to, well, not purposefully, but chose it. Or. Or subconsciously yeah. chose it. Yeah. Is that yeah? Um, the face of someone he thought he couldn't save, but did. Right, and it, it's the line. At, it really plays into the line at the end of the episode of you know where Donna says, "If you you can't save the whole city, but can you at least just save one?" Right. You know, and that's and that was kind of Somewhat. what he was r- reminding himself. Yeah. Right. The uh, interestingly, there was an apparently another explanation because this is not. Kekelius is not Peter Capaldi's only other role in the Doctor Who universe. He also plays um, a British, I guess, government official in uh, the Torchwood Children of Earth oh, right. thing. And oh, and yeah. Russell T. Davies apparently had an explanation for why Kekelius and um, that government official would have the same face. And when Stephen Moffat cast Peter Capaldi as the doctor, he called Russell Davies and said, does your explanation still work? And he said, yes. And apparently they were going to like use that explanation, but it obviously they obviously didn't because it isn't the one that is eventually provided of I picked a guy who's uh, who the face of a guy who I thought I couldn't save, but did because the doctor didn't appear in the Torchwood thing and thus didn't save the government official. Okay. Okay. Interesting. There it are also well, other yeah. fan theories that have been around in Doctor Who fandom for a long time to explain why we keep running into so many people who have the same faces. And in, in some cases, it's deliberate. It's part of the story. Like there's a, a really great... um uh, second doctor patrick troughton story called enemy of the world where oh, the yeah. doctor turns out to be a dead ringer for salamander the mexican dictator of the world and um and so you have this role reversal with the two of them imitating each other and stuff and that's not the only time we've seen that so in doctor who fans have uh, speculated that in the doctor who universe there are a certain number of facial archetypes that keep recurring uh and that's the explanation well i suppose Mm. when you're talking about you know trillions and trillions and quadrillions of people throughout the universe you're gonna have some duplicates apparently well but why do (laughs) we keep running into those (laughs) luck of the draw yeah (laughs) so another interesting uh uh something to note about this episode is it introduced specifically uh, you know in, in in, not just in concept, but but as a as a uh, a named thing, the idea of fixed points in time. Mm-hmm. He, the doctor says, this, "You know, this is a fixed point in time; it can't be changed." Uh, and I was kind of surprised that this was the first time that came up. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there, it although we have at other moments when you can when the doctor said you can't change history, right. uh, which goes all the way back to the Aztecs, which we've talked right. about, where he he told um, that was. Barbara, yeah. that they couldn't change. History. That was more general, though. It's like you can't change history. Period, and right. they've gradually eaten away at that over the course of right. the show. And now they're providing an explanation for okay, when it's convenient for the plot, you can change history. But when it's right. convenient for the plot, you also can't change history. Well, and and of course they do this whole explanation of well, Donna's. How do you know this is a fixed point? And doctors, I can see it. And it's like. So he can see whether or not things are right. fixed points like, or not like, fixed yeah, points. Time lords or, have this yeah. sense or sixth and, sense about them, and that's actually that's actually neat because it makes the doctor more mysterious in that right. he more has a sense that too. we don't. Yeah. Well, it it even plays off. You know, going back to Rose, where you know Rose asks the doctor, "Who are you?" And you know, he says, "You you you know how you you learn that the Earth is spinning? Well, I can feel it, and that you know if it right. stops, you'll right. just fall off." You know, things like that. So he's got this extra right. sense that is more than just a yeah. human, our human five senses. He also has an intermittently functioning <laughs> yes. Time Lord yes. sense. Exactly. So another thing that that's related that's sort of introduced is this idea that it's not mentioned, but it's an idea of a destiny trap, which is 
your participation in the historical event makes its outcome inevitable. So like, you know, to use it from a different episode with this, when the silence tries to kill the doctor, they ensure the event they're trying to erase. So, you know, their plot to kill the 11th doctor, or in this case, uh, by, by them being at, uh, at, at, you know, at Pompeii on this date, they actually cause the eruption that history yep. records and thus makes it a fixed. That's what makes it a fixed point. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. So it's sort of always was mm-hmm. an event until even before they got there. So always was, will have been. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's of course one of the great paradoxes of time travel is if you, if an event happens and you go back and stop it, then you going back isn't actually going to happen. So then the event happens and this is kind of reversing that right. of by them actually being there, the event happens. If they hadn't been there, the event never would have happened, but then it wouldn't have been recorded that it had happened. Yeah. Avengers Endgame has a, has a really funny uh, moment where they talk about time travel and they just kind of like, yeah, I don't, we, we, they blow all the other like uh, uh, explanations from all over the sci-fi out of the water and just go, no, it doesn't work in like any of those things at all. And then they give their own explanation. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one interesting bit of history, I, I found it very interesting uh, watching this episode again. I did not, I hadn't seen this episode in years, maybe mm-hmm. not since it originally aired, and I didn't remember it as being a particular favorite. I remembered a mo, I remembered a moment in it that I really liked, which is where Donna speaks Latin while the TARDIS is translating <laughs> in Latin. Yes, um, I remembered that. I liked that as being clever. But overall, I didn't remember liking this episode that much, and I liked it much, much more this time. Yeah. Um, I think because since it originally aired, I've done a lot more study in Roman history, and I got a lot more out of this episode. They are really taking Roman history seriously in this. Lots of stuff they say is bang on historically accurate. Nice. Although one one bit is not necessarily. They date this episode to August 24th as the explosion of uh, Mount Vesuvius and the year is AD 79 and everybody agrees okay 79 is when Vesuvius blew. But there's actually a debate about the date. Right. That it hmm. blew. Yeah. And um and recently it was discovered that there was an inscription of October 17th, which is obviously, you know, a couple months after August 24th. And so it, apparently the date they establish in this episode is not historically accurate. It looks like it really blew up later, possibly October 30th or November 1st or 23rd. I remember reading hmm. about that. Yeah, that's the, the dating we have now is from Pliny. Uh, Pliny the uh, Pliny the Elder. The Elder, yeah, right. Uh, r- if I'm not mistaken. And but yet this they found this inscription that had been buried in the in the explosion therefore right. either someone was writing like a, a reminder for a meeting in a, in a couple of months or <laughs> on the wall or yeah. uh it was something else yeah so that's very interesting it, incidentally now it might be the 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 dating may come from Pliny the younger i'd have to check but it's one of the plenies so yeah. Pliny the elder was a roman naturalist and statesman his nephew Pliny the younger was also a statesman um, who incidentally wrote about some of the he, he provides an early reference to Christians, yes, and what do you do with them in the Roman courts? Um, but his uncle, Pliny the Elder, was a naturalist who actually died as a result of Mount Vesuvius exploding because he was a naturalist. He wrote a famous work called Natural History, it's a multi volume set describing basically science as it was understood at the time, and all the different parts of the world and what animals you find there and plants you find there and how the climate works. Um, but he was so curious about uh, about Mount Vesuvius blowing up, he got too close and was overwhelmed by the fumes during the course mm. of his naturalistic studies. Yeah, it was... Interesting. Th- they were, like, it was nearby. like He was like across the, the bay, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, went and saw it happen. Uh, so, yep. So the meanwhile in Pompeii itself, the Doctor and Donna were there while Pliny was watching this, and uh, yeah, and, like, and, and not only the Doctor and Donna, but two versions of Sylvester McCoy's Seventh Doctor are also running around. Right, <laughs> Gonna, yeah, should have mentioned that. Yeah, the 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 the, uh, the the Seventh Doctor was also at Pompeii twice <laughs> the day before. So it's uh, funny that they don't run into each other. That actually would have been funny if they ran by the TARDIS, but it would have been. Uh, the seventh doctor's t- TARDIS yeah. and the and the and the tenth doctor says no 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 that's not ours and then kept, just kept running 
That would have been yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apparently, Pompeii is a big was a big city. Yes, apparently. So, uh, and the the other thing I want to mention before we get into this is just that this is also part of the missing planets arc that is going on in this season. Uh, The Pyroviles will mention that their home planet is missing. Uh, Pyrovilia. Yes. Uh, So. Uh, meanwhile, so the doctor is trying to take Donna to Rome. He miscalculates as he does and ends up in Pompeii. Um, and mm-hmm. then we have this great scene, like you mentioned, Jimmy, where the, the doctor has to explain the TARDIS translation circuit to Donna. And she tries speaking Latin to someone and they think she's speaking Celtic or Welsh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mino speak Celtic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What she says is Vini Vidi Vici, which is I came, I saw, I conquered. Right. And it gets misperceived. I love how then. Uh, throughout the rest of the episode, the doctor continues yep. to use ordinary Latin phrases that have become part of English, like sa- j- maintaining the status quo. Yes. And yep. someone and 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 Peter Capaldi leans over and says he's Celtic. <laughs> now, well, here's a question I have: If Donna was thought to be speaking Celtic, because of course her native language is English, wouldn't the doctor be speaking Gallifreyan? Uh, probably. Mm. Yeah, unless he learns uh, yeah, English. <laughs> Uh, maybe the TARDIS translation circuits have to decide to default to one other language and then use it for consistency thereafter, <laughs> at least headcanon. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So the, uh, the, the, the doctor does actually make this reference to having been to Rome before and says that the mm-hmm. fire had nothing to do with him, presumably Nero's fire. So is that right. yet another uh, adventure? Yes. Oh, yep. yeah. Yeah. That's from the Romans. And he says, initially, the fire had nothing to do with me. Well, a little bit. And <laughs> what he's referring to is the fact that the first doctor accidentally gave Nero the idea for starting the fire <laughs> when he accidentally <laughs> set a, fi- a map of Rome on fire. <laughs> Oops. Oops. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then we have this moment where the, we see this strange painted girl played by Karen Gillan. Uh, who will eventually be Nebula in the Marvel Universe, but oh, and also a companion to the Eleventh uh, Doctor. But uh, so she's uh, playing this this strange painted girl who's one of the the Sibylines or the Sibyl sisters uh, mm-hmm. that are uh, a, a cult of um, prophets, uh, mm-hmm. your seers, and uh, she's spying on them. And this was a real thing. Sibyls were uh, female prophets in the ancient world. The uh, Starting in Greece, and they were held to, they inhaled divine vapors that enabled them to channel information about the future from the god Apollo. It's now legal Uh in Colorado. Yeah, now legal in Colorado. (laughs) The, um, the, one of the, there was actually a war in Greece fought, I think it was like called the First Holy War. It was uh, fought over control of the Sibyl because the Sibyls were considered extremely valuable. Um, there were a number of different Sibyls. The most famous of them, I believe, was the Kumayan Sibyl. And they refer to these books of Sibylline oracles. They, they'll, they say at one point in the episode that such and such is written in the 13th book of the Sibylline oracles. And that's a real thing. Um, we actually have some books now that are sometimes called the Sibylline oracles. They're not the originals. Uh, they were written later, and interestingly, they were written in part by Jews and Christians. And Ooh. so, even though, uh, even though uh, it's ostensibly a pagan prophetess that's giving these prophecies, right. Jews and Christians have worked their own hidden prophecies in there. So, Sybil <laughs> ends up predicting stuff from the Bible, including Jesus Christ. As a, as a kind of crypto evangelization to get pagans won over, that's why you actually see if you go if you look in the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo has painted the Sibyl on part of the walls of the Sistine Chapel because of this tradition with the Sibylline oracles. Huh. Those though are later forgeries. The original Sibylline oracles were a set of books that were actually kept secret by the Roman authorities because they were cons- it was considered too important, uh, too valuable to let this information out there to the public. But at mm-hmm. times of major disaster, they would consult what the book said and try to derive courses of action from them. And historians are aware of some incidents where that happened that gives us tantalizing little clues about what the original authentic Sibylline Oracle said. So did they have a picture of the TARDIS in one of them? We don't know. Maybe if we invent a TARDIS, we can go back and find out. Yeah. 
Oh, and there will be self-fulfilling destiny trap there. There we go. Uh, so the uh, the so at this point is when about when the doctor and Donna figure out that they're not in Rome, but they're actually in Pompeii on Volcano Day. And the uh, the young Sibylline runs to the temple to tell them that the prophecy of the blue box has been fulfilled, as Father Corey mm-hmm. mentions, which they've apparently gotten a, uh, a blue box uh, prophecy. Now, the doctor says, OK, it's time to get out of here. This is, you know, all fun, but we don't want to be here for for uh, Volcano Day. But we have TARDIS separation. Yep. The the guy that who thought that Donna was speaking Celtic decided to sell the TARDIS to Kekelius. <laughs> Who has set it up in his home as modern art, which is ancient Greek, uh, ancient Roman art, apparently. And it's also another Doctor Who reference, because in the episode City of Death. Oh, yes. We have the the TARDIS in an art museum in Paris, and John Cleese is standing there admiring it as modern art. And (laughs) uh, and I, I find it interesting. The title of that episode was City of Death because and it's being used here because Pompeii is literally a city of death. That's true. Very interesting. Nice job, Russell T. Davies. And and by the way, it, yeah, I think it's on YouTube. If if you haven't seen that scene with John Cleese where they're admiring it uh, for modern art, it is so worth watching because it's just it's funny. Because then it dematerializes right right in front of them, right? Yep. Exquisite. (laughs) I have to see that. I haven't seen that yet. So, uh, so we we have this family of Cacellius, his wife Metella, and Quintus, and their daughter Evelina. Uh, but Cacellius, Metella, and Quintus were taken uh, from the historic, the real historical person of Lucius Cacellius Iucurdus. I think I'm saying that right, as well as his wife Metella and his son Quintus, all of whom are featured in Book One of the Cambridge Latin Course, which is also set in Pompeii. And the yeah. Cambridge Latin Course would be what, like, a lot of a British schoolboys like Russell T. Davies would have taken in school. Right. And uh, they also, the parents actually die in Pompeii in that, in the Cambridge Latin course, but the son survives. And then they made up the daughter for this series. Right. For the show. Uh, and their, their daughter, because they need a girl who is going to become a sibling. And that's what we have here is uh, the da- daughter Evelina is due to become a sibling. Uh, the the son who seems to be a bit of a wastrel, uh, like a party boy, um, makes a comment about uh, you know vestal virgins. Mm-hmm. What is a vestal virgin for just for the sake of the listeners? Vestal virgins were priests of the goddess Vesta, goddess of the hearth, and in Rome they were uh, they were extremely important. You had to be a virgin. In order to be a member of their order, you could be buried alive if you broke your vow of virginity. And you could, though, retire at a certain point and get married, depending on the vows you'd taken. But they were basically priestesses of Vesta that were considered vitally important for the safety and well-being of Rome. Okay, okay. And, and, so, and they uh, did not, they, are, they were not sexualized at all. Um, right. The whole thing is these are the pure virgins. They are not wanton women. In fact, we know what they dressed like, and they were covered from head to toe, so no skimpy priestess garments. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a modern sort of idea, like, oh, virgins, and making a big deal out of it. So the father does accuse the boy of being out cavorting with Etruscans and Christians and all sorts last night uh, because he has a hangover. At, at the Thermopolium. <laughs> yeah. The Thermopolium is that's the hot food shop. That's the Roman equivalent of fast food. And, so he was, at, and, he was at the McDonald's getting drunk, apparently, and yeah. uh, dealing with Christians. Boy, as, as Christians are bad influences. Yes. Yeah. And, and Etruscans. Etruscans were a people that kind of preceded the Romans, the Latins in control of this area, we don't know a ton about them, but we know some, uh, and they were fading in influence at this time. Christians, on the other hand, obviously were new up-and-comers, and I love the fact they mentioned them here. I don't know that Russell T. Davies and the author would have been aware of this, but there actually is evidence for Christians being yeah. at Pompeii and Herculaneum uh, at this time when on Volcano Day. We have... Uh, a set of what appear to be crosses niched in the uh, or carved in the um, uh, streets of Herculaneum that lead up to a particular shop that looks like it had a cross on the mm-hmm. wall. And hmm. I have a whole book on the uh, the crosses of Herculaneum. So I was really cool to catch that reference here. So the 
there's a they ha- they're experiencing earthquakes in the city as the as the volcano is doing its thing uh, bouncing them around. Uh, no one thinks of it as a volcano yet. It's never it's never exploded. There's not even a word for volcano in in uh, Latin yet. Uh, it's just a mountain. And the, w- when they have this earthquake shaking things up in Cacellius's house, where he's he's an art collector with all this fragile art, they yell positions, and everyone runs around the room to grab <laughs> fragile objects. And I'm like, that is straight out of Mary Mary Poppins. Yes, like when the, yeah. when the admiral, the commodore, whatever, fires uh, his cannon off at noon in Greenwich. Uh, the uh, everything shakes, and so everyone has to grab things. You know, they yell positions and grab things. So, so if a funny Mary Poppins reference here in this uh, in this episode. Yeah, good thing the mountain god never got mad at night when everyone was asleep. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, Jimmy, I I'd heard that that tale that Latin did not have a word for volcano until Pompeii. Now, do you know is that true? I don't know. I may be able to find out before the end of the episode, though. I'll check that out because. Because I, I'd heard that. I, I'd heard that a long time ago as well. That's kind of the, the, the story of Pompeii is until the volcano went off, they had not didn't even have that word. And the word was made up based off of the, the volcano erupting. I mean, presumably yeah. that would mean this is the first volcano that Latin speakers would ah. have had. OK, so here's some data. Um, the English word volcano came into English around six, in the 1610s from Italian volcano. Burning Mountain from Latin Vulcanus, Vulcan, Roman god of fire. Uh, the name was first applied to Mount Etna right. by the Romans, who believed it was the forge of Vulcan. Mm. That's what I'd heard. Yeah. So that would, I suspect, without further research, I would suspect that predates uh, Pompeii, right. because Etna's been, you know, blowing off steam for a long time. Yeah, I'd always heard that the, the, that the Romans had placed, you know, a Vul- Vulcan's home being Etna from the from the the beginning, even the Greeks, I think, put him there too because Etna was such a famous volcano. Yeah, on and the that, island of Sicily. And obviously, you know, Pompeii was the first time they'd actually seen a volcano erupt with such force, right? Up close, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, up close and you know, but it so it wasn't a word that was un or it was a word that was out there, just maybe the average Roman citizen wasn't familiar with it, Perhaps. until yeah. So uh, the daughter, Evelina, is supposed to be, as, as part of her prepare, preparation for entering the Sybils uh, community, says uh, supposed to be breathing in fumes from the hypocaust. What's a hypocaust? Oh, I didn't look up the etymology on that one. But it's um, like a heating system, right? Yeah, it's, it's like the under, uh, under heating something, under burning something. They, he mentioned they mentioned how oh, there it's a modern modern city where they've got uh, hot springs basically coming from the mountain producing their heat. Okay, a hypocaust is a system of central heating in a building that produces and circulates hot air below the floor of a room, and may also warm the walls with a series of pipes through which the hot air passes. Okay, and so you would, presumably, like in Rome, it would be fed by a, like slaves feeding a furnace constantly and yeah. heating the air there. Whereas here they're and, so and, modern, and they had that like yeah. they had that like in Roman baths. Yes, they would have hot rooms in Roman baths right. like, that were heated this way. But Pompeii is situated on hot springs, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and so they 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 uh, use that, but he has these f- volcanic fumes essentially coming up through it, which not not really good to breathe. Uh, but she's nope. this girl is sitting over breathing in these fumes, and there's something below her looking up from inside some sort of rock creature face, which we'll, we'll eventually find out is the pyroviles. Um, then the, the Donna at this point, she's like, oh, we've got to warn everybody to get out of town. We could save a lot of people here. Let's, let's get people moving to the hills. Tell, you know, tell them to get to, to head out away from town to save them. And the doctor says, you can't like, this is, you can't stop what happened. This is a fixed point in time. And she gets mad and uh, at him for basically kind of giving up. She thinks, Call, he calls him Spaceman. Uh, that's that becomes yeah. Donna's uh, <laughs> standard insult for the Doctor is, uh, "Oi, Spaceman!" Uh, yep. Yeah, which is good. Whenever she's unhappy with him, and the Doctor, they get pretty heated with each other. They're they're pretty upset with each mm-hmm. other here. He's he yells mm-hmm. at her and she yells at him, and she gives it right back at him. Um, and then we have the the Sibylines. They explain the prophecy of the blue box, uh, and mm-hmm. the uh, High Priestess tells the sisters. That the sibylline oracles that Jimmy you mentioned before are wrong, uh, because they pre- they you know what they predict, and 
she says it, it there's a future of prosperity and power if they follow her uh, uh, her predictions. And in fact, there are yeah. many of these seers, apparently prophets in Pompeii at this time, and they're all predicting this this future. All these uh, events with great accuracy, right up to mm-hmm. Volcano Day, which they none of them see at all, and then. After that, they predict a you know a, a Pompeii will become the premier city in the world, and uh, that will be mm. it'll become the Pompeii Empire, not the Roman Empire, um, and so on and so forth. And uh, and the doctor gets kind of taken aback by how accurately uh, these different prophets know who he is. Yeah, the right. uh, city augur refers to him as Man of Gallifrey. Uh, he also mm-hmm. tells her him she is returning, and he gets to ask who's she. And we don't know at this point, but it's Rose. Yes. Um, The auger also refers to Donna as daughter of London and Mm -hmm. says there is something on your back, which is a reference to the upcoming episode, Turn Left. Yes. Uh, Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah. The daughter, daughter, who's training to be a Sybil, also refers to the Cascade of Medusa and refers to the doctor as a lord of time. And so we got a lot of foreshadowing there. Um, she says also his true the, name is hidden, though, which is interesting. Right, mm-hmm. but she outs him as the doctor. She looks at Donna and says, you call yourself noble. Um, yep. And the they explain that for the last 17 years, since there was like an earthquake or something, the soothsayers, augurs, and haruspices have, in Pompeii have all been accurate. Right. So yep. before, they weren't necessarily accurate, but now they are. I love the fact that they mention uh, haruspices because you don't hear them referred to a lot today. You'll hear about soothsayers and augurs to some degree, but a haruspex was a person who foretold the future by examining the entrails of an animal like the liver of a sheep. So you'd sacrifice the sheep to the god, yank out the liver, and look at it and say, here's what's going to happen based on what I'm seeing in this liver. A a Mm -hmm. much grosser version of reading the tea leaves. Exactly. <laughs> so, the, so that uh, the auger for the city is uh, Lucius Petrus Dextrus, uh, and he yeah. shows up at uh, which his name loosely translates as Stone, stone right, right Arm. Yeah, <laughs> which he which he is. <laughs> uh, so, so right on the money there. It's some eponymy there. Uh, so that uh, he arrives at Kekelius's house, and he and the doctor have some mumbo jumbo pseudo profundity sparring, which the doctor wins with an English pun. On sun and sun, S U N and S O N. Uh, I'm not sure that would translate to Latin as a uh, good pun, but you know, no. we'll we'll uh, we'll let that one slide for now. Um, the doctor tries to get Donna to leave uh, while you know Lucius and uh, Kekelius is there until Kekelius unveils for Lucius a new marble uh, slab that he's been working on for him uh, on contract, which turns out to be a circuit board. Quite quite clearly, a circuit board. Yeah, even even Donna says that's a circuit. Yeah, and uh, so so at one point Lucia says to Donna the prophecy, or not to Donna, but to Evelina because she's you know making a, a, a seeing uh, the the future. He says the prophecies of women are limited and dull. Only the menfolk menfolk have the capacity for true perception. And Donna says, "I'll tell you where the wind's blowing right now, mate." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just love Donna. That is awesome. So that was really funny. And then, uh, so uh, Lucius, I get all these Latin names. Lucius's arm is pretty much all stone now. We 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 haven't seen it yet, but, you know, he's hiding it. And the, you're refusing yep. to shake hands yeah. with the doctor. Mean, meanwhile, the daughter has like a stone patch on one of her forearms. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, that, and this is when the doctor learns that all the soothsayers in the city, say that 10 times fast, are breathing in stone dust from Vesuvius. And uh, mm. and then the doctor sneaks into Lucius's house at night and finds out he's got not just one, but a whole bunch of these circuit boards, which, are, mm. you know, somebody must be giving him this technology uh, information on this. Uh, meanwhile, Dawn is trying to tell Evelina what's going to happen. Uh, but then the Sibylline sisters somehow hear they have some ability to hear from a distance and call for her death. The way that that happens is the Sibylline uh, sisters who are really a lot like the sisterhood of Karn yeah. from Gal- mm-hmm. from Gallifrey. Um, but they have, I mean, you have the same sisterhood with fire and all and prophecy and stuff. Um, what they have is on the back of their hands, they have illustrations of eyes. We're not told, are they just drawn there or are they tattoos? But early on we see, uh, Amy Pond put <laughs> her 
hands over her eyes so that her hand eyes replace her real eyes. And it's really creepy. And as soon as she does this, she can start talking and the other sisters will telepathically hear her. Mm -hmm. So when Donna breaks cover and defies the doctor and tells the daughter about the volcano is going to blow, the daughter immediately puts her hands over her eyes. And since she's in training, she's got the eye symbols on her hands, too. And she says, the noble woman, and I love how she's the noble woman now because she's (laughs) not a noble. Uh, the noble woman says the vol- that the mountain's going to blow up, and so that's how they learn, and they say, oh, it's a false prophecy. That's not what we've been told, so we're going to have to put the noble woman to death. Okay, and at the same time, Lucius has, con- has, has caught the doctor sneaking about his house and sentences sentence him to death, and uh, the doctor responds, moraturi ti salutant, which uh, loosely translates as, we who are about to die salute you, which is a quote from... Various places. Gladiators in the, gladiators, uh, in the arena. Yes. Uh, but of course, Lucius thinks he's speaking uh, Celtic at him again. And, uh, and this <laughs> is where the doctor... Now, this is a pretty pretty graphic moment, although not gory. But the doctor mm-hmm. reveals that Lucius has a stone arm and breaks it off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, originally, the, uh, he was, the script called for David Tennant to then throw it on the floor and smash it. But... Yeah. David Tennant objected to that, thought that was over the line, so mm-hmm. he didn't actually end up doing that. He also, in this scene, arranged the circuit boards for, or the circuits for uh, Petrus to make them into an energy converter. He right. figured out that's what they were for, but he didn't know what energy they were supposed to be converting or into what. Right, but uh, as he escapes, which he, of course he does, he knocks them all to the floor. None of them break. Uh, that's pretty good marble. But yep. uh, they're yeah. all they're all mixed up like into like a puzzle piece. And then he describes the uh, auger as being armless enough. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> nice. Uh, yes, nice uh, accent there. And then uh, so then the uh, Lucius calls on the pyroviles to come and uh, you know take out the doctor. And so a uh, one of these the, the, these giant stone warrior, fiery stone men, yeah, yeah. attacks Cacellius's house up through the hypocaust. And uh, in the in the midst of this, the defending against it, the, they throw water on it to put it out, which is a good idea. Yeah, although yeah. burst, it like uh, breathes on a guy oh, yeah. with fire Slave. and disintegrates him. Yeah, That's, there's nothing left. That is a pretty hot fire. Uh, and in the midst of them trying to defend against it, uh, Donna is taken by the Sibylline sisters, um, where she's the you know where we see her next is uh, tied up on an altar of sacrifice and. Uh, Donna is righteously outraged. Yeah, you, you, when we get the initial close-up <laughs> before they pull back to reveal the altar, she, we just see her face kind of, I think, upside down, and she says, you yeah. have got to be kidding me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, So the doctor shows up to save Donna, and uh, he does tell them he's met the actual Sybil, and uh, that, she, that they are nothing like her and, or her teachings. Um, and this is when the, the high priestess reveals herself and she is actually a a stone person. She's yeah. she is one of these people who's fully converted to stone now Physically. by the pyroviles. Yes, but she still has her human mind. But the uh, pyrovile inside her is so strong now that the doctor is able to bring out its consciousness. Right, and <laughs> uh, we learn that the pyroviles are trying to turn the people of Pompeii to stone before the eruption. Uh, but the doctor is armed with a weapon with a gun. Uh, but this one yeah. just is filled with water. So Where we... is his classic <laughs> opposition to guns here? Yeah, exactly. Apparently, he doesn't have a problem with the squirt gun, but y- yeah, real he, guns he are shoots her the with the water pistol, and, uh, and she freaks out. I love out. it when when one of the sisters points out that's not a real weapon, and he goes, "Yeah, but it's got a sting." <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> which recalls a, a vacation, the the Chevy Chase movie. Oh, <laughs> it'll leave a nasty. Uh, Leave a nasty wealth is how he puts it there. Mm. Uh, so the we find out that the pyrovile had crashed on Earth thousands of years ago and were shattered into dust at that time. Uh, and apparently they've regathered themselves back into stone over time. And that the earthquakes of seventeen years previously woke them up. Um, but he then he wonders why they can see the future, but not the eruption. Why they have this ability to see the future, but no, but none of these soothsayers can see the eruption. And yeah. that's. 
and, a key and you, to the twist. And even though they're they're using humans' latent telepathic abilities, so here we have it established: humans are latently telepathic, um, yep. and the pyrovile, although they can't be telepathic themselves, they're able to bring that out in their human hosts. Um, the, uh, the doctor for some reason thinks, well, telepathy is just okay, but knowing the future is way beyond that. It's, uh, that's not a psychic <laughs> ability you should have. Right. And I'm going, really? That's, <laughs> that's even more knowing, trying to know the future psychically is even more common in human history than trying to be telepathic. Right. Exactly. Um, but, uh, so, th- so he's, we're going to have a line of dialogue later to explain why they can surprisingly know the future the way they do. Also, the doctor gets another accent based quip in where he tells, uh, one of the stone men not to get yourself in a lava. Yes. The, we're punning on lather and lava, uh, yeah. which, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch. So even just, just like Britain. some British accents leave the H out on the front of a word, mostly armless. Um, we, some others leave the R out when it's final. So lava rather than lather. Yeah. Well, and, that, uh, that, that TARDIS uh, translation circuit can, is so good. It can even handle puns. Yeah. <laughs> apparently. Yes. Uh, but even if this one apparently is a pun too far, because even, I think even the doctor recognizes that it was just not a good one and, yeah. and so, sort of regrets it. So the doctor and Donna, they climb down into the hypocost that's inside the Sybil's, uh, chamber there, whatever it is. And they make their way to the center of Vesuvius, which, you know, doesn't seem like a good day on Volcano Day, uh, a good idea, but, you know, whatever. And they find the Pyrovile's ship or escape pod or some sort. Yeah, an escape uh, pod from their ship. And uh, the doctor realizes he has a terrible choice to make. Yeah. Vesuvius isn't going to explode. And this is why they don't see this in their future, because it wasn't going to explode. It wasn't a volcano about to erupt uh, because the Pyrovile's have have diverted all of the energy of the of the volcano somehow so um, that they can convert millions of people into pyrovile yes uh but so the doctor in order to stop them he has to make the volcano erupt but that's going to save the world but it will kill pompeii uh as and, history records and it and will so kill the doctor ter- and donna right they think they're going to die in the blast um and that's his terrible choice that he has to make which he does and Donna joins him. Yeah, Donna is willing to sacrifice herself to save the world, and they both push the lever together, which foreshadows the day of the Doctor. Where it, it I don't know that I, I, Russell T. Davies, I don't think could have envisioned what they would do with this. Mm. But the moment of the Doctor causing Pompeii to perish in fire by pushing a button with other people so strongly parallels the Doctor call, causing Gallifrey to perish in fire by pushing a button with other people um, at the end of the time war. Right. So this doctor would be remembering a a similar action uh, that he had taken. So they do survive, obviously. (laughs) And uh, it turns out that this this pyrovile escape pod can survive a volcano erupting. They nuked the fridge. (laughs) Yes. And uh, they... Right. It's recalling the Indiana Jones and the terrible movie. And yeah. they uh, <laughs> they go they get back into Pompeii as the ash cloud is the ashes start to fall. And they're they're Dawn is trying to warn people to run for the hills, you know, and she not she's, not the sea. Not the sea, uh, because we we know that the people run for the sea and end up dying there. Mm-hmm. Uh and she tries she stops to try to help a crying child and isn't able to. And um, man, this was like yeah. wow, this was a very emotionally like tragic because yeah. you know that these people are all dying and, um, and and she's she's about to save this child and then the child's mother grabs the child and takes it away from her and donna's right. just left standing there going that child is gonna die i couldn't save him right the helplessness that that she felt would would be i can imagine what that would feel like um and then they get back to kakelius's house he and the and donna are about to get into the tardis you know, the doctor's thinking of Gallifrey, and he says he can't go back. You know, he just you just can't go back. Um, but Donna, in tears, asks him, "Just save someone, not everyone. Just save right. someone." And so they and, and Kakelius and his family are all huddled there in their house, watching the TARDIS disappear. Like Donna and the doctor get in, they kind of look back, like "Sorry," yeah. and they take off. Initially, the doctor just charges into the TARDIS ahead of Donna, and we start to hear it whirring. He is taking off. 
And she right. is still outside of the TARDIS wanting to help the family, but finally has to just run in after the doctor, at which right. point she makes the speech about just save someone. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they do. They come back and the doctor doing his the thing Russell T. Davies likes, the savior doctor with the light behind him, oh, shining yes. behind him. He reaches yeah. out a hand and says, come with me if you want to live. Uh, which he doesn't use. The, he doesn't do the Arnold accent, but that's about it. And uh, they they save Kikelis' family. They take them outside the city to over to you know, the overlooking to the hills, um, and they leave them there. And uh, the this is when the doctor explains that the gift of prophecy was because the explosion. He says that it opened a rift in time that echoed into the past. There's some kind of weird, uh, you know, timey wimey explanation hand, here. But, hand uh, wavium. Yeah, uh, but. Now, now Kekelius and Metella and their family, they move to Rome and you know start a new life there. And the uh, the we get this moment at the end where they tell their son Quintus to go, you know, sacrifice to the to the god household gods. And so he goes, and then we see uh, a, a a marble relief of the TARDIS and the Doctor and Donna um, as the new household gods of Kekelius's family. And that's where we end the story. So. Uh, Anything else you guys you want to have to say? Anything I didn't cover in in this discussion, nope. that, uh, Jimmy? Father, well, Father, how about you first? Nope, nothing, nothing for me. Okay, um, I had a few things. Uh, Peter Capaldi was so much nicer in this. He was <laughs> yes. so much. He was so sympathetic <laughs> in this. Why couldn't they have written his doctor this way? Um, <laughs> I would have liked him a lot more if he was this likable. Uh, also, I thought it was interesting that when uh, the doctor shows up at Peter Capaldi's house, um, the doctor is willing to honor the household gods. Um, and that was a real thing. In Roman houses, You each house was protected over by certain tutelary deities. Um, and so you could come into someone's house and say, who are the gods of this house? Oh, it's uh, Mars and Jupiter. And they'd have a little shrine to Mars and Jupiter. And you could, you know, what they are doing here is like they flick a little bit of wine to the uh to the images to uh to honor them and the doctor is willing to do that which is interesting we don't normally see the doctor participating in openly religious rites obviously he doesn't really believe in these deities but he he's willing to go along with the custom of the time and and greet them also there's a nice bit where um where uh peter capaldi asks the doctor's name and he says I'm Spartacus. And Donna says, so am I, which is, of <laughs> yes. course, is the classic 1960 film. I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. And <laughs> and Peter Capaldi reasonably concludes, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Spartacus. And they're, oh, we're not married. Oh, brother and sister then. Which is a recurring uh, joke throughout yeah. this season where people mistake them as a married couple and they they have to say, oh, no, 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 we're not together. Yeah. Uh, also, we'll see that next time. Also, the first of the Latin phrases the doctor casually uses when Peter Capaldi says he's bought the TARDIS is, well, caveat emptor. Oh, you're Celtic. How lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep, yep. Um, then at the end, uh, the wife of the family is, and by the way, Peter Capaldi is apparently the one who in the Doctor Who universe coins the word volcano. Right. Um, but uh, Metella, the wife, refers she says to the doctor who are you doctor with your temple containing such size within and so she Mm. perceives the tardis as a temple and that's actually related to something and then we see in the six months later series where everything's going great for the family and you know the son is told to honor the household gods and he does and in the reverse angle shot we see it's doctor and the doctor and donna have become the household gods that actually right. rings true to ancient culture because you had people who, like Alexander the Great, were held to have, you know, they were had fantastic abilities compared to ordinary people and were, a, were worshipped as gods during their own lifetimes. And to have somebody show up with a TARDIS and save you from Pompeii, it's believable that people in the ancient world would conceive of the doctor as a god and would conceive of the TARDIS as some kind of temple. And um, that's actually something that's happened before in the history of Doctor Who. In the first Doctor's time, he had a companion from the Trojan War named Katerina. And Katerina believed 
that the TARDIS was the place of perfection and the doctor was Zeus, who was taking her to the temp, uh, taking her in his temple, the TARDIS, to the real place of perfection. So we've already had an ancient person from Greco-Roman culture in the Doctor Who universe mistake the Doctor for a god and uh, view the TARDIS as a temple. Oh, also another illustration of how this could happen in the ancient world, when uh, Paul and Barnabas were at, I think it was Philippi, they were mistaken for uh, Zeus and uh, Hermes. Was it Philippi or Laconium? It might have been Iconium, but uh, Barnabas was mistaken for Zeus, and Paul was mistaken for Hermes since he did all the talking, Hermes being the messenger god Mercury. Oh, okay. Interesting. But they didn't have a TARDIS. They didn't, okay. have, they so, didn't even have a TARDIS, and the people thought they were gods. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Excellent. So there's a, you know, the, having a uh, Doctor Who episode set in ancient Roman times, it really gives us the ability to really talk about all this stuff that we know uh, a lot about. And it's a lot of fun yeah. to uh, to bring it all up. And I hope uh, you all enjoy that. So I think uh, before we finish up, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including this week, Stuart J., Father Darrell, uh, William C., Jeremy S., and Joanne M., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows we're doing at StarQuest, including the new shows we've got coming out, including American Catholic History, which I mentioned before. That's only possible because people like you uh, give us uh, the, your your uh, support, your financial support, uh, by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Without, without you, we, don't, we can't do anything. So we really do appreciate that. So that's it from us. What did you think of this 10th Doctor story, The Fires of Pompeii, and what we had to say about it? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page and leave us some feedback there or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the fourth Doctor story called Revenge of the Cybermen. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Dom. Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, you fought her off with a water pistol. I bloody love you. Right. This is going to be fun.